Welcome to the B&E Podcast with Brandon Colby-Cook and Evan Schulte. Exploring the creative process and finding the balance between artistry and industry. Entirely uncut and unscripted. It's not so serious, folks. So don't take this too seriously. <laughs> it's the B&E Podcast. Uh, we are on 152 episodes right now. And this podcast, if you haven't listened before, is all about artistry and industry and finding that balance in that line. Um, I have a lot of stuff to talk about this week. I'm sure Evan does too. We'll discover that as we go. But, um, you know, the, the main point of this whole podcast Um, if you've never heard us say it before, is that we really want to navigate and find that balance between being artists and actually having careers as artists and being able to sustain an artistic career throughout your whole life if you want to do that. I think uh, a lot of the time people, you know, dabble in the arts and they think of it like, well, I don't really know how to make this like a career or anything, or they, it never kind of surpasses kind of the hobby point. And also sometimes you get paid and you make pretty decent money and you're doing a lot of work and you stop having fun and you stop being creative and really expressing who you are in the industry side of it. And so, you know, what we're really trying to do is just find that balance. And, uh, you know, today it's just us, no guests, but, um, yeah, join us for the ride and it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Usually is at least for us. Yeah, and I'm going to do something bold right off the top. Oh, goodness. No, I'm just going to say, if you haven't yet, make sure you uh, share this with your friends. Oh, okay. Yeah, and yeah. follow it on iTunes or SoundCloud or, you know, or Stitcher, any of these other podcast directories. Go to our website at thebnepodcast.com. You know, follow the blog. Leave comments. Do things like that. We'd appreciate it. We love that interaction. We see people listening, like the stats are there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and some people do, you know, they message us and they talk and, you know, uh, it's great, but I'm just saying, yeah, for those of you who are listening, you know, interact with us. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have a topic that you think would be great for us to discuss, let us know. And on a topical day, we will, we will actually tackle it. Yes. So, we have um, done so in the past. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Do you want to tell us about your week or shall um, I just in terms of creativity and yeah. creative process. I don't know. What is life like as an artist right now? Yeah. <laughs> what is life? I mean, I, it feels like right now, uh, like art artistically it's been, um, it's been more sort of philosophical than necessarily involved hmm. per se, just because I'm, I'm, you know, getting ready to, to get married. So it's like, you know, wedding stuff, life stuff, getting all that stuff. That's been consuming kind of any sort of free time that I have. Uh, but every now and then I'm, I'm getting an opportunity to, um, just grab a guitar and, and play around a little bit and, and, um, yeah, just kind of like mess with the, an arrangement of a song that I have written, work on like little bits of other things, but just also, uh, sitting down and just exploring some sounds, just being like, oh, okay, that's cool. And, and I'll kind of record it like just like a little blip of it, basically like a sketch of it and say, it's like, okay, here's an uh, idea for a song and I'll come back to this and, yeah. and 
put something to it or flesh it out a little bit more, figure out where, where it wants to go. Hmm. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I've, I've been doing mostly. Uh, been trying to up some of my game as well with, with my playing, just like I've been doing some, uh, you know, just some online lessons and stuff like that and, and watching some videos like, you know, here's how to do this little thing or add this into your playing, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, I find it so interesting. It's like, you know, you learn some new little phrasing or some new little note that you can play. Um, like, you know, when you're soloing or, or putting together, you know, a chord progression or something. And, and it's like, it's not much, but you, you find like, I find it interesting that something that's kind of technical, it's like, okay, yeah, add this into like, you know, a scale, basically you add this into a scale and you can do that for soloing. And it's a note that you've never worked necessarily messed around with before, but it adds this whole new color Hmm. and dimension to, to everything. And so the first thing is like you, you get comfortable and just kind of finding it in a way. It's like, that's like the first step is it's like, okay, I'm not used to putting my, my finger here at this, at, at this place. Right. You say like, that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Write a story around yeah. that line. I'm not used to putting my finger here at this point. Uh, <laughs> He's uh, talking about the guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am talking about the guitar. Um, no but you know, it's like, I'm you know, cause you just, you get, you kind of get, um, comfortable with, with sort of what you have learned hmm. and you play in there and, and, and you start to understand, you know, and you develop a kind of an intimacy with it. You start to know what will do certain things, how things will create certain sounds, but then you kind of throw a little twist into it and you add something else into it that you've never done before. And you're like, I don't really know exactly what to do with this yet. Hmm. Right. You kind of understand that it will work in a certain way, but then the fun is actually like you start to get comfortable with it and then you can add it into your playing and it adds this whole color to things. It adds this whole expression to something that you never had before, hmm. which I find is like really like, it's kind of a fun nifty little thing. Like f- for the point at that, where I'm at in my own, in my own playing is, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, I'm not, I'm no, master guitar player by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but I'm at a level where it's just like, I can pick up new stuff pretty quickly. Right. And, and so it's like, it's, you pick a new little thing up and then you go, Oh, okay. Now what the hell am I going to do with this? Right. That's like the, that's the big thing because it's not necessarily, it's like, okay, well now that I've learned this, I'm going to just always use it all the time. Mm. That's not, it's just like, it's another thing that you have at your disposal. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's really awesome. I, uh, for me, you know, actually I've been, cause I'm getting more, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing my career more towards directing. So I've been, uh, you know, I've been really kind of, I guess, diving back into studying filmmaking and kind of going, you know, looking into stuff, uh, you know, reading online articles, um, finding resources that, you know, share really cool things. Um, and I watched a video actually earlier today where they broke down Quentin Tarantino's filming style. 
Mm. And it was really, really interesting the way they did it. I thought it was a really great um, description of this filmmaker. And they talked about, you know, how he shoots a film and what he'll do is like a lot of um, like a lot of filmmakers in a dialogue scene feel the need to cut a lot between the characters. Right. And a lot of Tarantino stuff is really like one shot that's held really long. Yeah. And they were, you know, they're pointing out, it's like, obviously he has a lot of confidence in his dialogue because for you to do that, like most filmmakers are going to move around because they don't believe people will be engaged. But if you look right. at his films, a lot of the time you're really engaged, but the shot doesn't change. And, um, yeah. he was, ta- uh, this, this reviewer was talking about certain things about how he uses certain shots a lot. Like he'll use, um, he'll use a shot where he uses a point of view, especially from like a dead body, like when everybody's looking at it or something. Right. Um, and how he'll do shots that are, um, if it's a group setting, like in Reservoir Dogs, when they're at the, uh, when we're, when they're all at the diner, he likes to do the 360, like you go all the way around and the reviewer is kind of pointing out how, what he's doing is he's really giving you kind of a holistic view of like the environment and all the people. And, um, you know, what, what, what I learned in film school, the, the most valuable lesson I learned in film school, I didn't learn, in my opinion, film school was kind of like, ah, you could take it or leave it. But there was these little gems that got snuck in there every now and then. And one thing that I learned was from my film art class and how the teacher really hammered home the idea that the camera is like the, the a person's eye. You know, it's like mm. the lens of the eye. And so the thing is, is that you position them where you believe they need to be so that they can see it the way you need them to see it. And, you know, as I'm going, moving forward on the films that I'm about to shoot, um, I'm really, I'm really kind of putting that part of my mind together is kind of really thinking about, okay, well, this event occurs, but how do I want people to see that event? And, um, and that sometimes is the, is the thing that really makes, like a scene that might not seem like, I don't know, like, I don't want to like the thing that I'm kind of pushing myself towards as a filmmaker is I don't want to be a filmmaker that relies on stunt sequences and all this spectacle to make my stuff interesting. I think that with enough money, an amateur filmmaker can make that stuff look pretty good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But like, to be a really great filmmaker, to be like a, a, you know, like a Scorsese or a Tarantino or Kubrick, you know, dare I say, right. Yeah. It is like to, to take a shot and give you a, a view of something that has an experience yeah. because what you see is actually not always as important as what you don't see yeah. and how you work with what you see and don't see in the position in what you see it. Yeah. And so, this is, you know, I, I'm kind of relating it back to your, your guitar playing because yeah. you're not going to use these shots everywhere, but you start to think in ways of like, well, what does this do? What's the effect of that? Yeah. You know? And like in, for music too, it's like, especially for, um, you know, gu- guitar players and stuff like that. Like it's, it's the notes that aren't played just as much as the ones that are, Right. you know, like they give, they have, I, I always tell people like, go and watch this. Well, I'll put a link into it in the, in the blog, but there's this YouTube video of, uh, of John Mayer and BB King jamming together. And, uh, and it's funny cause it's just John Mayer's like, he, who's a great guitar player. I'm not taking anything away from him. He's one of my absolute favorites who's, you know, in the world today, 
but you know, he's, he's kind of like showboating a little bit, trying to show off in front of one of his idols. And he's like, he's monkeying around all over the place, like playing all this stuff. And then BB King takes his turn when he jumps in and he just like hits this one note and he just holds this one note for like, it seems like an eternity. <laughs> and it's just like, wow, just like, it just, and to me, it was just like, you saw John's whole world just kind of come apart, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it was like, I think he did it just to be cheeky with him too. Yeah. I think he did it intentionally. It's just right. like, it's just like, you can have just as much of an impact if not more of an impact with just playing one note, just hold one note mm. and let it just kind of fucking sing through the air. Yeah. You know, like there's something that's like, there's that's not to say that all of the sort of, all of the, the cool little movement and the, and the stuff isn't a good thing. Like that can absolutely be, um, what is needed that can actually be Yeah. It can actually be the right thing to do the right movement. Mm. If you're, if you're kind of like in the zone, if you're actually like really following along with it. Yeah. Um, but not always, right? Like sometimes you're just kind of doing it for the sake of doing it. And then that becomes, you know, yeah, it becomes really self-indulgent right? and, and, and uninteresting to kind of watch at least for any great length of time. It's kind of like, it's kind of like finding that, you know, finding that place of, trust in your work. And at the same time, like knowing, knowing, like, like not making the, the art revolve around you, but, you know, finding out how you can be a conduit to it and serve it. I mean, I think like, you know, part of the thing is like, like as a filmmaker in a lot of my career, I've pushed myself into um, being more of the producer, being more of the guy who's taking on an ambitious project and figuring out how to get it done for less money faster, um, in ways that, you know, are kind of almost even, I've had people say like, well, it's impossible for you to do that until I've done that. But in trying to do that model, um, I sacrificed a lot of my creativity as a director and I put my shots aside to service getting my coverage and to get things done and complete my day. And I became like, I would say that my success as a director has not been so much in a creative light. It's been in more of a, an assistant director, you know, kind of light where I'm kind of the guy who's really good at getting a lot done, a lot of shots done in the day, really fast, um, getting all the coverage, making sure everything is like that when it gets to the cutting room table, there's nothing to worry about. Yeah. And if there was an error or a take or whatever, there was enough coverage that we always had a safety net. And so in a lot of ways, my filmmaking up until now has been pretty safe, to be honest. And so this is the first time really since I was maybe a young teenager where I've actually been exploring what I can do creatively as a director yeah. and like literally not trying to shoot several scenes in a day, but like just maybe even shooting one scene in a day, but yeah. shooting it really, really well. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's been interesting because this part of my journey as a director, I'm realizing like, yeah, there's all these great shots I want to do, but like, you know, your example's kind of good because as I'm learning more about it, I'm actually kind of finding a humility in it. Like I'm being a little bit humbled by it because I'm going, well, just because I can do this shot doesn't mean I, I should. And I'm, I'm starting to 
like look at scripts and visualize a way of doing it, which isn't necessarily safe. And in the cutting room table, you might get there and you might be like, well, it's an, a way to do it. It's yeah. not necessarily, but the thing is, is, I think that for me right now, if I really want to go down this director road is about doing kind of two things. One is having a visual vision that I trust and, and I might get to the cutting room table and it doesn't work or it's not the best way to do it. Or we, we run into snags um, where we don't have all the coverage because I, I did something more creative and that's one side of it and, and learning to kind of have the confidence to go and do that. And the other side of it is, um, seeing how the story could be shown as opposed to the way that will make sure it gets shown. So like the best way I can describe this is, um, you know, uh, there's a, there's a feature I'm working on, uh, right now we have a writer and all this stuff. I talked about it many podcasts ago. Well, it's, it's nearly done. And, you know, looking at this project and going, okay, well, uh, you know, the more I think about it is like, well, do I want to even show that person's face for a certain portion of the movie? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And like in, 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 in the safe way of filmmaking, you get coverage on everything. You just get coverage. And then, you know, in some ways you direct it in the editing room, but that's the very safe way to do it. And often the most boring way to do it. Yeah. Whereas like a Kubrick, someone like that, they literally edit it on the day when they're filming it. And the editor doesn't necessarily get a say over how it's going to be cut because they already shot it the way it was supposed to look. Yeah. And so like, that's kind of the thing that I'm kind of embracing now as a a director, which is an interesting thing. And you know, and it's like, there's different ways for everybody to work too. Cause like Scorsese is, is famous for like, he does all of his own shot, um, uh, storyboarding. Right. He draws like all like he, but he's like, picturing all the shots. So he's just to communicate to everybody else. He's got a vision mm. for something. And, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing to get into. And, you know, you talking with Quentin Tarantino earlier and for all you film students, like I never went to film school. I've been in the film industry and I've been in, I've always admired, um, and appreciated really great cinematography. Um, just creating a really beautiful striking image, um, or, or, filming in a way that like the shots, like they, they help fuel what's going on, you know, in, in like this weird sort of subtle way. Uh, and you know, someone like Tarantino, someone like Scorsese, actually Christopher Nolan, someone was telling me that Christopher Nolan is a guy who loves to film with one camera hmm. as much as possible. Really? Okay. Yeah. He loves to just like single shoot for, I don't know what his reasons might be. I can only kind of speculate what they might be, but, um, you know, everybody's kind of got a different way. And the thing is, if you're like a film student or something and, you know, you're learning all of this stuff and, you know, I've learned about stuff like get your coverage, right. You know, like, and it's, it's a practical thing to do. It's about kind of being safe. But the thing is, is that that's kind of what become, it becomes reduced to that. Yeah. You know, getting shots gets reduced to just getting coverage. It's like, well, hold on. Like the, so the important thing, if you're in film school and your teachers aren't talking to you about this, then you can do this for yourself is ask why you're doing the shot. You know, like what's underneath the shot? Because the thing is, is that the close-up shot wasn't just for coverage. The close-up shot was because there was something you wanted to capture in that proximity. 
Hmm. Like you needed, like there was an intimacy, there was something, there was, that was important to have that. There was, there's always something that created this, right? And then you're becoming, oh, well, it's just kind of practical to shoot. You know, you get all of these shots in at the same time. And yeah, absolutely. Right. But it's important to just at least, even if you're getting all of the coverage, it's, it doesn't hurt to have an idea of what you are kind of going for, what you would like to try and get out of these shots. You know, even if there is a, like, that's a little bit beyond just covering your bases. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, cause there's, well, there's yeah. something cause th- everything impacts because you can see something that's just been shot for coverage. Yeah. You know, you can tell because it's like, and, and I understand why a lot of people have kind of, and a lot of directors, especially the ones who are kind of given themselves free reign or have earned the right to give themselves free reign at a certain level. Um, why they kind of break rules and it's like Christopher Nolan, like if this is, I, I should really investigate this, but if it's true that he really loves to just shoot with one, one camera as much as possible, like that's an incredible rule, general rule that he's just breaking, hmm. you know, like it's pretty extraordinary. And, and same thing with, with Tarantino, but there's something behind it, right? It's like, instead of like, just coming, like he knows that he wants just like, you know, I just want this as a two shot. Yeah. I want this as a two shot because there's something about that interaction that it's like, no, if if you were to cut away at any point, you're going to break something, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to break attention. You're going to break a certain relationship that's going on. So you keep the two shot and you hold it and you keep people there until you want to break it. Right. Right. These are the kind of the little decisions, the little artistic decisions, the creative decisions that you get to make. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, out of sort of a, I don't know, the, this thought of being practical and being safe, you can cut yourself off from your artistry. Absolutely. Well, you know, absolutely. Cause you know, I've shot, I've shot multiple films now with multi-camera and, um, you know, you got all the cameras going right. And you're covering, you know, you're covering both actors or all three actors in the scene or whatever you're doing. And you're, you know, and you just got all this coverage going on. Yeah. And when you get it all done, you're like, okay, well we know we got it. Like we know, and, and camera's good. Everyone's good. Sounds good. And so everything's been covered. And so, you know, that's an interesting, a certain way to do it. But when you set up with multi-camera, you, in a lot of ways, you always have to remember that another camera could see another camera. So you're setting things up in a certain safe way so that cameras don't overlap each other and mess up the shot. So there's that going on already. Because one camera, if it's too close and the other shot is too wide, well, it doesn't work. Right. So you've got to keep them both out. Okay. And then like the other thing too, is with coverage, here's where I've run into trouble with coverage. I'm so glad we're talking about filmmaking. Cause like, I feel like we haven't had a good, like one about like just talking about shots and things like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, um, this is where coverage in my experience goes terribly wrong in the sense that it makes your film extremely boring. And I think there is a time for it, but it should only be used sparsely. And it's when you get the coverage, when you get like what I'd call maximum coverage. So what you did is you go into the shot, you get like, you know, your master or some wide shot, then you get, you know, coverage of the actors and you get like a medium shot or like a, like a, like a medium wide shot, a medium tight shot and a close up. And then you got that on both actors. And basically you walk away with like your seven shots or something like that. You've covered the scene. It's a dialogue scene. There's really not a lot of movement. And so you've done this and now you're like, okay, well we got it covered. 
And I think that sometimes it's good to do that. But if you can go without doing it, you can, you can be a much better filmmaker in my opinion, because I've done it that way. And, and the thing is, is this is what I learned very early on is that if I was going to be working with actors that say were not very experienced yet, like they weren't, I'm not working with movie stars. I'm working with people who, you know, are just trying to get their first film or, you know, they've only done a little bit of work or they've maybe done bit parts on television. They're not like series leads and things like yeah. that. So they don't have the experience to know how to hold a show. So as a director um, or creative producer, you go, okay, well, I can't afford to have my film die on a bad performance. Yeah. So the, so the thing you do as a new producer is you do maximum coverage because basically what you, cause it's all digital anyway. So you go and you shoot it and because you've covered like every actor, like three times, if they messed up a line or they had an untruthful moment, you can just cut away from it and mm. cut to something else. And so you create a bunch of cutaways and you create a bunch of different wide, medium close-up shots. And what ends up happening is because the actors are not that great yet, not to say they're not going to be, but they're still new, right? What happens yeah. is if they don't get it on their first few takes, by the time you get into the close-ups, they've they've really like done it a lot. So they're really loose and they're warm and they're feeling comfortable. Yeah. And so by the time you get to the close up, they've had a lot of practice by the time they get there. Right. And it's kind of a, it's kind of an amateur filmmaking cheat where you can kind of get around, say like working with actors that are not very experienced and trained yet and make it look like they had a great performance because if their performance is on stage, it might be no good at all. But if you have a great editor and a great filmmaker working to cut it and make it tight and like really favor them in every shot that like, and only show their really best work, what ends up happening is you can help uplift their performance. So that was something that I learned early on. And now like in my career, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm much more connected in the industry. I've worked on shows with like, you know, lots of series leads, movie leads. Um, you know, I haven't necessarily directed one with like, you know, famous stars, but I've been in movies with relatively famous people. And so now the people that I'm working with, I don't need to cut around their performance. I could literally hold the camera on them and like they're, they're at least at a place where they could actually captivate you without cutting away. You know what I mean? And so, the thing is, is I think when you look at like a Tarantino or a Kubrick or these, these other people, and I'm saying this to these young film students who are out there, you, you guys are like teenagers or you're early twenties and you're just beginning your film career, or even if you're starting late, doesn't really matter. If you're brand new to filmmaking, you, you're not going to be able to, unless you're working with really great talent, you're probably not going to get away with the confidence that Tarantino and Kubrick get away with yeah. yet. Not because your actors are not, your actors might be exceptional. But the thing is, is that usually everybody's not very experienced yet. So you get coverage just because you all do coverage because you basically all agree you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? But as you get older and you like kind of get more experienced and you start working with more experienced people, um, then you can be a little more bold and a little more confidence in your, in your shots. And I'm not saying people can't do that when they're young, but like, most of the people that I know that succeeded as young filmmakers actually had a lot of filmmaking experience before they made their film. Yeah. And so they worked out a lot of those kinks and that's kind of what gave them the confidence. So I think when you go out with your first film, go ahead, dare and try and do whatever. But I think that 
Um, just get the, do, do your daring shots and then get the coverage just in case. But like, as you get, you know, as you get like, you know, you're spending more on these films and you're getting more experienced, then you don't need that safety net of coverage anymore. Mm -hmm. Cause I think of coverage, like it's important. Yeah. You need to cover your scenes, but it becomes the safety net. It's like, well, if my real vision doesn't work out, I'll just rely on my safety net. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to like talking about shots and stuff like that. You know, cause some of my favorite films in terms of how they're shot, like I love Woody Allen's films. I love how those are shot. I love the fact that like, he'll just like, there's a scene going on and you're watching it all happen. Like, like with very little cuts, like so, so much of his stuff he does in like long takes mm. and there's a conversation going on. And at one point, you know, you see both people in the frame. And then at one point there's only one person in the frame, but the conversation is still going on yeah. and one person is out of frame and then they come back into frame. And it's just like, it's, it's nuts. Like it's something that would, that makes, you know, probably certain types go like, Oh, like <laughs> you're breaking what are they all the doing? rules. You're breaking all the rules. Where's the coverage? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, but then you go, well, it wasn't really necessary, you know, like in some ways it was actually really like blue Jasmine, I thought was terrific. Mm. Um, and how it was shot. Um, and yeah, it's like one, one camera, you know, but Woody's kind of, he's got, had some experience in doing this stuff, right. You know, like he's been making films for a while. So, you know, he's kind of, he's, he's kind of sussed himself out. He kind of knows what he can do. He knows what he can get away with. Right. Probably knows what he can't get away with as well. Um, but you know, and, and other things too, I think what comes to mind is like, uh, stuff like, uh, uh, you know, the born, uh, the born identity. Yeah. Right. When that movie came out, it, it redefined action movies. Right. You know, and then everybody was copying what they did. But I remember watching an interview and Paul Greengrass was saying that what they did with the way that they shot it was that they were like, we never predicted the action with the camera movements. So you they never always tried to keep, they always, up. they always tried to keep catching up. Yeah. Um, so you never, as an audience member really felt like you knew what was coming or right. what was happening, you know, and it created there was this no leading. Yeah. And it yeah. created the sense of urgency. Like there was like, you know, you never knew what was going to happen from, from the next frame to the next and a kind of, and then when stuff was happening, it just felt like frantic and crazy. Hmm. Um, and then in uh, a funny way, uh, some like a, a popular, more modern type of action film these days is the John Wick movies. Hmm. And the directors, I can't remember their names now. Um, but they, I, I saw an interview with them saying it's like, they decided to go in the complete opposite direction. They're like, we don't want, we did like, they, they didn't want to do shots. Like where you're just like, what's happening? Like the camera's all over the place. And if you watch it, it's like, you see everything that's happening. Hmm. Like they kind of pull things back a little bit. They pace it. Like everything is like very tightly shot. And it creates it's, and I won't say it's a better or a worse thing. They're just different. They create a different feeling because you watch a John wick action sequence versus a a born identity or born trilogy action sequence, you know, like they're, they're conveying different things. You know, John wick is all about like this, like, like being super slick. And it's almost like a ballet Hmm. that you're watching. It's just like, 
Yeah, you're totally. like you're watching this thing, and Bourne's kind of just like it's just like boom, 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 like boom, Ron boom, boom, gritty. Yeah, Ron gritty, and it's yeah. like and and so it's like is better like like saying one is better than the other. Not really. It's it's but this is where these guys are making decisions as artists. Like, what do I want to show you? Mm-hmm. What do I not want to show you? Right? Like, yeah. It's and a very important thing as an artist, no matter where you go, what are you showing? What are you not showing? And, yeah. and, and how are you using the tools at your disposal? Right. Right. Because they, the tools cannot dictate the art, you know, they, they never will. No. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I, I, you know, it's, um, I think the thing is too, is when you, when you look at the type of movie you're making, you look at the Bourne series, for example, and the Bourne series wants to be grounded in reality. It wanted to give you, well, at least they decided let's give people a more, you know, almost Kramaga, like kind of like a very real tight kind of survival esque fighting sequence. You know, yeah. when, when someone gets into an altercation, like I, I don't know about you, but I've been in real fights before. I haven't been in like really like dangerous fights, like, <laughs> and like, like a board any stuff fight where I was like battling an assassin and kicking him through no. glass doors. No, cause but, I'd probably be dead. Cause yeah. I'm not that capable, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, in fact, I'm sure I would be. Um, but the thing is, is I have been in actual fist fights and you know, in, in those scenarios, um, especially when they get, when you're grabbing each other's shirt and you're in tight with each other, the punches are flying, things are flying. And, you know, you know, my experience of it is almost too, is that you don't even really feel anything like, like, uh, like, uh, you know, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, the adrenaline's just kind of pumping. Well, you see like these Kung Fu movies, for example. Right. And when someone's like a real tactical skilled fighter and they can land a real hit on somebody, like I'm sure you probably feel that I'm sure that it's a very direct specific kind of hit. You know, you see this in competition and UFC stuff like that. People who are used to like trading blows. Yeah. They hit punching bags. They train, they do all that. If you put a trained fighter against someone that doesn't know how to fight, trained fighter should win 99.9% of the time because most people think they know how to fight, but they don't really know how to fight. And like, I've been in fights without really having much of any skill of knowing how to fight and felt the chaos of that. And, you know, I've been in fights with having at least some knowledge. And the thing is, is that, uh, you know, there's many, many different disciplines, but the, the thing is, is that with these guys and say born, right? Like they're very skilled fighters, but they're so matched that they, they become almost more like people who don't know how to fight anymore. Because once you get people, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. You can watch these YouTube videos where you see people like fighting who don't really know how to fight. And it just looks ridiculous. Yeah, flailing. Like, they're flailing. Yeah. flailing yeah. But when you look at like competition fighting, like they're poised, they're dodging punches, they're hit, they're, they're, they're spotting where they're going to actually hit somebody. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing is, is like when you take action movies and I mean, this is just all on the director's choice, but to get back to my original point, Bourne wanted to give you a more grounded, realistic survival based experience of it. And like you take John Wick and that's so far out of reality, but they're like, okay, well we're out of reality. So let's play. And so I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying that if you know the reality in which your movie exists in, you get to 
film it in that reality. Yeah. You know, like when you look at these superhero movies, I mean, we can all dream of that, but like, come on, that's not really in reality. Right. Yeah. So I think there's, there's also a certain kind of point of, well, we can, we can go and explore this a little bit. You know, and I like what they did with the bond series, uh, the more recent ones, because they took it and they went, okay, let's take this kind of crazy fucking character and crazy world. Yeah. And let's ground it a little, but not so much that it's real, but enough. So it's just a little more real than it has been. So it gives yeah. you a little more of a visceral feeling when something actually happens. Yeah. Cause if you look at the early bonds, like things happen, you like, like it's unaffected. Yeah. Right? It, like they were, they were super like, like popcorn flicks, yeah. you know, it's just like, you know, you're like, Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And He's like, so silly. Yeah. Guy, yeah. It's like, oh, it's like yeah. but, uh, it like, it's like, Oh, James, yeah. ah, you know? And then, but these ones, you're just like, you're like, Oh shit. You know, yeah. like, you're like this shit's like, you know, kind yeah. of like Daniel like, Craig, you, you do, you yeah. kind of just like, it grounds you a little bit and you go, Oh shit. But then it still gave me the moments where I was like, Oh, James. Yeah. So, <laughs> well that, you know, and that's one of the things that like also with the new bonds. And I think that's why they've done so well is they've met like the other thing films have a time and a place. Like there were eighties action movies and nineties action movies. And like, you know, now two thousands and you know, two tens. Right. And so we've evolved. We want different types of action as we go. But, um, Tarantino, for example, played homage to like old Kung Fu movies, yeah. but he brought it and into Westerns a, too. and Westerns, but yeah. then he brought it into a modern style. And like, um, I think what happens here, like with the bond, they did such a good job because we want, I think audiences right now at this time and, and look at the Batmans, if you don't believe me, oh, yeah, but yeah. they want, they want more gritty, more dark, more like harder edged. Like they don't want so much fluff, but they yeah. still don't want it to be real. They want it to be magical and extraordinary too. Yeah. Because if we really did, like, I think we have enough reality TV and real stuff where we don't go to movies necessarily to see pure reality. We go to movies, but we want, we don't want the the movies to be ridiculous. Yeah. We want them to be kind of like, even if you take me to a crazy world, make it at least believable to me. You know yeah. what I mean? And audiences today want that because if you look at like 80 or 90, 90s movies, right? Action movies. Those are so ridiculous. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? You're like, now they're fun to watch because they're so silly in a sense. Yeah. But like you couldn't, unless it was a comedy, you probably wouldn't get away with like a 90s or partially satirical action movie, which yeah. is like, you know, the expendables is kind of like that. Like the well, expendables is but, almost but like because a, they're old action heroes. Yeah. So it works for that reason. But even then the expendables tongue in cheek, it's, it's tongue in cheek and it's still like updated for the time right. as well in some ways, you yeah. know, it's like, they've still evolved the action. It's just like, no, we're still going to do crazy over the top action. That makes no sense. But there's an, they, they've still made alterations to it, you know, like it's not exactly well, like they used to do them. And I think like, you know, Stallone, he's a smart guy because I mean, what I think what they did with that franchise is they playing on the nostalgia. Yeah. They're playing on the nostalgia. They know they're doing it. So they're giving you that throwback, but at the same time, they're making it, um, kind of present for an audience that doesn't have the nostalgia. And yeah. I think that's the fine balance. You know, like when I, I mean, I'm just going to throw this in. We already did a podcast on it, but star Wars, some people don't like it, but the way that JJ Abrams kind of rebranded the series was kind of by almost keeping the brand. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think for me, being someone who grew up with Star Wars, I really, really appreciated that. Some people are like, oh, you just copied the way it was. But, but for, I think for a lot of people, and I mean, you know what? Box office numbers don't lie. Let's just put it that way. You yeah. can love it, hate it, doesn't matter. It made a shitload of money and it's only making a shitload more. Yeah. So the thing is, is that and the gen- something's working. Yeah. You know? And the general consensus as well, subjectively sure. from the mass majority of people is that it's like, they're far better than what had come yeah. previously. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, um, so anyway, not including the original trilogy, Yeah, not including the original trilogy, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, like they're, they definitely, there's a, there's a, an extraordinary balancing act that goes into that. And, and it's extraordinary when people can, can walk that line too. That's like, well, Star Wars too is like kind of like, it's a whole bag of worms because if you think about it, that that's a franchise that literally people like, and I'm not even kidding, identify their lives with. Yeah. And it's not your, it's not just your regular movie. I mean, Born series, the Born series is a series, but it's not like a Star Wars series. Yeah. Like Star Wars series, like people are literally like they'll fights over like Star Wars is better than Star Trek. You know what I mean? Like people yeah. are not necessarily like the people who kind of like born is better than Mission Impossible or better than Bond or whatever they're saying. Like they're not, they're a much smaller group. I wouldn't say they're, I mean, there's probably someone out there who could prove me wrong. Who's way more passionate than anybody. But I would say like, number of Star Wars, Star Trek fans compared to like, say Mission Impossible born series fan. <laughs> like you're like a yeah. hundred or a thousand to one. You yeah, know what I mean? Like, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. a different, you know, it's a different, it's so, you know, so that's why it's a bag of worms with Star Wars. But I think what's, I think what we're kind of getting at here is we're talking about how, um, the filming of it and the delivery of it and the style of it, how much, that is an expression of the filmmaker, how much it's kind of aligned with the film itself and also with the times that we're in. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm getting from what we're kind of, you yeah. know, going on. Right you know, now. and yeah. it's, yeah. And, and to me, a lot of this is about, it's like, it's not necessarily, um, what you know or how much, you know, but it's in how you use it. Right. Right. How are you using it? Because if you're just using it because that's what you are told to use, well, then you're not using it right. <laughs> you know, it's like the idea is like, it's like, know what it is, have the knowledge of it, but now how does it serve you? Right. How does it serve you in a way that, that allows you as an artist to express more fully, more completely. And, and it comes down to the decisions that you make. Mm. And I mean, in film, it's like, it really is like in film it more like, there's all these little decisions that happen in a lot of different artistic fields. I feel like if you're in the realm of like a director, filmmaker, it's just like you are making decisions. Hmm. <laughs> totally. You know, it's like, it's not like, Oh, maybe we'll go here, go there with like an, as a musician, like with this note or that note. And it's like, you know, there's these things that are kind of, I don't know, maybe they're a bit more malleable. Some people might disagree with me. I don't know. But you know, I feel like I make these kind of decisions on, on stuff and, and you just kind of make them as you go. Right. And not that you don't do that as a filmmaker, but because as a filmmaker, there's so many other people involved in what's going on. Yeah. It's like, you've got to make a decision 
on what you are doing because it impacts everybody. Yeah, it does. You know, like it has a big, like it sends out a ripple that's going on. And it's like, and, and it starts with, you know, your, your vision and what you're trying to communicate. And, and then you've got to roll with that. But like when you, when you strip your work down into its, its components and its technical bits, and that's all that you're operating on. It's just, I've worked with directors who are like that. I've worked with directors like that. And it, they're not the best directors. <laughs> they're definitely not. When they're shooting on a whim? Not just that they're shooting on a whim, but like, you know, they're shooting for coverage. Yeah. You know, they're shooting to just, you know, check their, check the list off. They're not really thinking about what it is that they're doing. Yeah. other than, than achieving that, you know? And to be honest with you, that's kind of the bare minimum and it's, and it, and it makes you a technician. It doesn't make you an artist. And it's a strange thing because subjectively I've, cause I've worked with some really great directors and, and I've worked with some directors who are like, I've just been explaining and the great directors and you can, and you know, I've, I am DB'd them and stuff like that. And, and seeing it's like the good ones, it's like there's a reason why they're just doing so much stuff. Mm. And there's a reason why everybody's smiling while they're on set. Right. Like there's just like, there's a, there's an energy behind somebody who's just like having fun, who's passionate, who's doing something. And someone who's just like, okay, uh, let's just get this here and here and then we'll shoot it like this. Okay. All right. That worked for everybody. All right. Do we need to block this? <laughs> and you're like, I guess not. Yeah. You know, like it's, you know, it's like, it's, it just all of a sudden the love is just gone. Right. There's no love in what's happening anymore. I think the thing is, is like, you know, when, when a filmmaker say is making their film on a shoestring budget and it's their first film and they don't necessarily know what they're doing. And it, I think it's good to make a film, even just a short film, just go and make a film and do it right. Do all your coverage, do your thing, whatever, go, go ahead and try it, get, get it out of your system. And then, then look at your film. That's totally well covered you know, cut it together, see how it all works. It'll fit very nicely. Cause if you covered it properly and you did, and you followed the rules of getting coverage, you're going to have a nicely cut film. It'll fit very neat yeah. and nice. But the thing is, is that look at that film now and go, what could I have done had I had this experience and was willing to take that risk? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think when it comes to coverage, like it can be it, like, I think the thing is, is too, is like, if you're, if you're running and gunning filmmaking, like, you know, like, uh, I, I think about like indie filmmakers who like, are like, okay, let's just shoot this. And then we're moving on to the next thing. Cause we're going to get this next thing and we got to get our day done and we're losing daylight and we're going to yeah. get kicked out of our location. And there's something alive about that where you're just like, okay, we get the shot. And because you don't really have the choice, but to just get it done, yeah. you kind of rise to the occasion. But I think like, you know, when you have all this money and all this resource and you have, uh, you know, you have the option to take a risk and you have some experience, I would say error on the side of taking the risk error on the side of looking for what you could do as opposed to what you should do. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, I think that, you know, at least for myself as a director, the thing that I'm 
venturing into now. And it's almost out of necessity. I mean, really like with these proof of concepts, you got to create and all this stuff to, to really get your name out there. You can't have a, just a film that's just coverage. I mean, I know my writing can hold on its own, but I need to, I need to be able to, I need to be able to visually show what I can do now. And I need to do it authentically without being like, look at this great shot I did. I need to do it when, and it needs to honor that actual movie. Yeah. So the thing that, that I'm kind of, you know, I'm almost, I don't know what I'm doing here, but maybe giving advice to those young filmmakers and saying, don't do special funky shots because you can do them because in the story, you see that there's something there. And, you know, I would say for myself, cause I made, I made quite a few films now. I would say that for myself, usually I didn't do the shot because I felt too much time pressure and too much about getting my day done. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it took me until now to maybe learn that kind of confidence in my, in my filmmaking. But I would say like, make a lot of films, take a lot of risks. That's the best thing you can do. If I, if I could go back and do anything as a filmmaker, I would just have made more stuff. That's all I would have done up to this point because I could have got more stuff out of the way, more trials, more practices. And I would have shot, I literally, this is my advice for young filmmakers. I, this is my literal advice. Make 23 minute films, literally go out and make 23 minute different films and take huge risks on each and every one of them. And if 19 of them don't work, but one turns out like it actually was pretty cool. And maybe you get some cool shots and some of the others, you're going to have a reel that's going to be fucking awesome. And you'll have learned so much of what you need to know to be, to be a director that can shoot a feature and knows how to take risks. Yeah. Um, if anything, like right now, like I'm kind of learning how to take the risks that I never took early on in my career. And that's fine. That's what I have to do. That's the position I put myself in. Yeah. But, um, you know, I definitely know how to get a day done. I definitely know how to get it done fast. And there's something good in that too. But, um, you also need to know how to take risks. Little caveat, little side note, the two types of directors that are being hired more than any type of director right now are the visual effects artists, who can also direct a story right. and assistant directors. The reason why is assistant directors can get the day done and visual effects artists can already pre-plan the visuals they're going to be putting into the movie. Right. So if you're say, I consider myself more of a, what I'd call like a natural director in the sense that I'm more about performance and story directors like myself are literally kind of a dying breed because those types of directors are basically losing out to the visual effects guys and the, and the assistant director type of directors right. who are becoming directors. Right. So if, and I, and I think those types of directors should go off and learn more about story and acting and really enhance their craft there. But if you really loved acting and maybe you grew up in the theater or you grew up really caring about performance and stuff, now your job is to think more technically is, is to think technically and figure out how to think technically and quick. Cause mm-hmm. those are the two most important skills that I could, that like, and, and look, like I'm hanging around producers that are putting like two to $15 million pictures together. The two things they want the most are being able to have, well, three things actually being able to shoot fast and get your day done. Cause yeah. that screws the budget up big time. If you don't, uh, two, if you can having some type of visual effects background, or at least an awareness about the visual effects, because, um, 
that's just such a prevalent thing in films today. Yeah. And thirdly, and this is the most important and it's the hardest to teach, but is that you have a sense of taste. Yeah. It's this, and, 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 uh, you know, from what I, from, uh, and from countless producers that I've talked to, the thing that they say is most people don't have taste. Most people don't have a good eye for what actually like, is good. Is good. Yeah. And I, I don't, and they like, they say, you don't know how to teach it. It's like almost like a na- I don't believe it's a natural ability necessarily, but I believe you need to open your eyes as a director and you need to really like authentically go, okay, like what, what's going to honor this story and be truthful to this story. And what do I like, what is my vision? Because I think when people say you lack taste or like someone lacks taste, what they're saying is that you're too generic. You're too cliche. You're too common. It's been seen and done before. Yeah. And there's nothing stand out about it. There's nothing special about it and it's too safe. Yeah. And I think where taste comes in is when you take a risk and it works. Yeah. 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 Not having lacking taste is like, well, you got the coverage. Yeah. Basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, but, but what else, you know, like there's still, it's, it's interesting because there's still a recognition on like, you know, that on the level of like the producers and, and whatever. It's just like, well, it's, there's, there's gotta be something original. There's gotta be something happening. There's gotta be a certain something yes. going on. Yeah. It's very cool. Um, you know, it's interesting. It's just, I watched this, uh, a video the other day, someone had shared it on, on Facebook or whatever. And I think it was, um, uh, Jim Croce. Okay. Old, old musician from like folk musician from the seventies. I think it was him but he was talking about this, this thing. He's like, you know, he's like, he's like, there was this time when it's like music was being made. And he's like, and it was all these old guys, like all, like who are the heads of these, of these studios. And it was all these old guys who were just like, well, I don't understand it. Like, you know, they're hearing this young music that was coming out. I don't get it. He's like, but you know, let's, let's, make it and we'll see how it does. Right. And, and it's like, Oh great. That's sold, you know, couple million units, blah, 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 blah. blah, Right. And it was interesting because he was pointing out, I was like, it's actually, it was during that time that the most creative music was, was being done. It's like, and then the problem happened when they started bringing these, you bringing young people in who thought they had taste. Hmm. Right who were just like, just like, Oh no, the young people wouldn't go for this. And like, Oh, okay. So then they weren't making this music. So it actually shut it down. I thought it was kind of interesting thing as opposed to like when it was just these old guys who didn't understand it, acknowledge that they didn't understand it, but were like, but okay, sure. Hmm. They're a young person who's making music. Right. You know, right. Like it's, yeah, it's very, it's, it's interesting because he's like, and then it was like, yeah, these young people who ended up kind of kiboshing a lot of the creativity that was happening Hmm. because they were the ones who were, who, who felt it was up to them to set the trends and determine what was going to be popular, what was going to be a hit and what wasn't going to be. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the thing is, is that, um, in just about any medium, especially any artistic medium, playing it safe will always create some type of glass ceiling. It will always create some type of ceiling in which you can only be so good. I mean, it's like, like fortune favors the bold. 
you got to take risks. You got to try stuff that, you know, maybe is a little bit different or is, you know, I think the thing is, is you got to be willing to investigate and look into those ideas you have and see and see what they are and explore them. And I think that, you know, before you get onto a multi-million dollar picture where you're the helm of as a director and you might never work as a director again, because at least none of those people are going to want to hire you again. Yeah. Um, learn on a short film, learn on an indie film and go take some risks doing that before you get so much like money and investment behind you and, and try some stuff out and be willing to fail. Yeah. And I think that all great art and I'd say pretty much all great people, they are willing to fail, which makes what they do seems so amazing because if you think about like a great sports move, for example, right? The reason why we call it incredible is because there was so much room for failure in there and somehow they pulled it off. But when they do something that where there's very little room for failure, we're like, yeah, whatever. Like if you failed at that, like you're terrible. But yeah. like, if you, if you succeed at something where everybody thinks you would fail, where it just, I mean, even you like know the odds are against you and you pull that off. That's an incredible thing, right? That's what incredible is. And I think, you know, we, as artists, we, we, I think we all want to be incredible, but I, I want to say like my, my call to action for myself and for everybody listening and for you is let's be incredible. Let's take risks in our career. Let's go in and do something where the chances of failure are far higher than the chances of success and see if we can pull it off. You know, because I think that we want to be incredible, but, um, we buy in to playing it safe in so many ways. Like, you know, I committed my entire life to being an artist and so far I've done it pretty successfully, but in certain ways I'm looking at myself right now and I'm going, I'm still not taking enough risks. I'm still playing it too safe. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm becoming very aware that if I really want to take the risk, if I really want to go for it, I got to be willing to go fall on my face and I got to be willing to go try some stuff out. And you know, like, um, I'm even kind of having that awareness in this conversation. And I'm just, as we're talking, I'm realizing like, I'm like, it's like a, a, this effect of like everything going through my mind where I'm playing it safe right now. I'm going, I want to take a risk there. I want to take a risk here. I want to take a risk there. I want to go do it. I want to go live. And, um, I think what I'm really realizing through this conversation is that I know if I do it safe, I can get it done. But I know that if I, take the risk. I might not get it done, but if I do take the risk, there's a chance of something really great occurring. Mm -hmm. So I think what I'm going to do is, um, you know, I think I've already figured out, I'm going to go on from this conversation and figure out where I could give myself the chance to do something great. Mm -hmm. And if I got to fail nine out of 10 times or whatever, or more to go do that, I, I, that's what I'm willing to do. And you know, I think the way you put it is very, very important is to give yourself a chance to do something great. Yes. To do something incredible because you, you can never really know. You can never really know. Um, at least not for sure. Not a hundred percent. You might have a hunch that you might be doing something great, but there's still always a sense of just like, but I don't know. You gotta, you, know? you gotta take that and, shot. But yeah, exactly. It's like, but you, yeah, it's, it's all for the chance. 
mm-hmm. of doing something great. Otherwise, it's just playing everything safe. And art is not about playing it safe. Maybe that's the title of this. Give yourself a chance to do something great. Of this whole podcast episode, yeah. you know, cause really, I mean, that's what we've been talking about. And I think we look at these, you know, directors, we look at these actors, we look at writers and musicians and artists of all types. And what we see is they've done something outstanding, but what they did was they took a risk yeah. and we, we see the risk work out. And somehow I think what happens in society, we delete the fact that that's how our risk is done. That, you know, I mean, you, a lot of the paintings they did before didn't work, but this one did. And that's what matters. You know what I mean? And so I think it's kind of like, um, one thing I have learned in my life, because I have taken some risks. I mean, I haven't played my life totally safe, but what I have found is the more risks I take in a given area, the less likely failure is in it as I do it actually to the point where taking a risk becomes even safer than playing it safe. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, once you do something enough, uh, it becomes not scary anymore. You know, it becomes kind of like, uh, it's almost harder to mess up than it is to, than it is to do it right. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, I think that it's something that, I think our society constantly programs into us and it's not really our fault in that sense, but we have a society that's constantly programming us to play it safe, to be secure, to cover all our bases, to make sure we got backup plans. And so we, we don't just take this into our lives. We take this into our art. We take this into our relationships. We take this into everything. Yeah. And I think that we, we, we wonder why we're not reaching our potential and being mm-hmm. as outstanding as we can be. Yeah. That's, you know, it's, it's so, I was listening to a, to a podcast a little while ago and, and this uh, guy who's a theologian, saying, it's like, you know, he's like, there's a problem with so many of these dating sites that are out there. And he's like, because it's like the, there's this promise that it's like, you're taking all of, all of the leg workout, you know, you're matching up on compatibility, you know, this ease of everything is in the problem is, is that it's like, you're taking the falling out of falling out of falling in love mm. with somebody, you know, you're trying to make it safe you're trying to make love safe. And it's just like, he's like, and it isn't, it isn't a safe thing to do. If you want the real fucking thing, you've got to fall. Right. Right. And I thought like, Whoa, that's like, that's really good stuff. And I think it's like, you know, we've got to fall for our art. We've got to completely fall for it. You know? Yeah. It's very poetic. Yeah. (laughs) Um, let's (laughs) on a complete shift of topic here. here. Um, I'm falling for this beer here. Nice. This is, this is great. This yeah. is just so nice. So nice. <laughs> it's so nice for the summer. <laughs> Be damned. Okay. Well, tell me, tell me your thoughts more than nice. Well, it's a nice light. Um, he uses nice again. Nice. It's nice and light. So, <laughs> so nice. nice. So nice. It's, it's, it's so nice. Nicest, it's everybody's it's friend. This every, beer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I feel like this beer would be everybody's friend actually. Yeah, well, it probably would be. Uh, I want to say this has got to be some kind of a blonde or something like that. Okay. Um, but it's very easy drinking. Um, I'm going to th- throw a, a, a bizarre just prediction out there. I'm going to say it's under 5% alcohol content. Um, it's smooth. It's tasty. 
it is beautiful. <laughs> it is it is a pretty blonde and it's refreshing. So this beer this beer is called Simplicity Blonde. Yeah. And it's from Category 12 Brewing. Oh, cool. We just did, I think we just did Category 12 on the last one too. Yeah, I think so. And it was the first time. So yeah. we've got so two. We did a back-to-back. Um, we yeah, did their, so. We did their, uh, their Wild IPA. That's right. We did the Wild IPA last on the last podcast. So it's 5% alcohol. Okay. Right on the dot. Right on the dot. Yeah, so... Um, but it, yeah, you don't really notice it. Um, yeah. So here it has a little saying, pretty cool can, right? Yeah. Um, so it has a little, a little write up on the back here. So it's says, welcome to the lab. Quite often simplicity brings clarity. It's only when you take a moment to go back to the drawing board and revisit your calculations that everything comes together. Showcasing organic spelt grain, this straw colored pearlescent ale starts with a lightly fruity and floral nose that leads into a subtle body with a crisp dry finish, clean and slightly bittered with just a hint of European sass. Simplicity reminds us all to step back, relax and appreciate the finer details. I like it when they do write-ups like that. Yeah, that's great. And that speaks so much to like stuff that we talk about on this podcast. I know. (laughs) Sometimes you got to go back to the drawing room, go back to basics, go back to the simple shit and it all comes together. Well, I'll tell you, you yeah. know, I'll tell you for me, like the thing that I, the, the thing that I'm realizing the most in my career as an artist and just a person in life is, um, when things get too complicated, when things get overwhelming, go back to the basics, go back to the fundamentals and, you know, keep it simple. And I think that's kind of why I chose this beer, because for me right now, my big lesson is kind of the humility of, you know, going back to square one and starting again, but going back to square one with, with not like fresh, but like with all my experience and all my wisdoms and life and whatever that I've had, but going back and doing the basics and doing the foundational fundamentals again, because as I've been slowly making my transition out of being uh, a screenwriter and pushing myself more into being a filmmaker and really pursuing that, um, I've had to kind of almost restart my filmmaking career Mm -hmm. because if I pick up where I left off as a filmmaker, I had, you know, in certain ways I was doing like, like we're talking about, I was doing my filmmaking career too safe. And now I get a chance to kind of go back to when I started filmmaking, keep it simple and take some risks and find out. And I'm excited for what's to come, you know, that way. And, uh, for me, you know, also is, you know, we we were talking about this before the podcast and, and I didn't share it on air, so I'll share it now. But, um, you know, redefining my relationship to my art too. Um, you know, there's this way in which I always felt I had to do my artistry, you know, and, um, and the thing is, is I think that what I don't, what I haven't been enjoying is the way I feel I've been needing to do it. Like, Mm. um, so just to give people an example, so there's some context is like, you know, 
I was getting paid to write scripts for hire. And so I was kind of being a bit of a glorified scribe as opposed to an actual like creative screenwriter. Now, when I write on spec for myself, I'm a creative screenwriter. I I write, no one tells me what to do. I have full autonomy. But when I started getting hired um, and I've done this, not every job, but a few jobs I've done this where I basically kind of subjugated my autonomy and basically kind of listened to what other people wanted and tried to basically just give them what they wanted as a good little employee. And I started to not like screenwriting. And so what I found through this process was like, no, like I love to write, but I love to write with autonomy. I love to write doing it my way with who I want to work with and, and really expressing my vision. Yeah. And so Um, I'm really like the big thing that I'm learning to kind of do in my art now is not to do things to please people. And even if it will make me money is like say no to the job because I can make money in other ways. Um, but I, I I keep kind of reminding myself, I don't write to get paid. I like, I don't write to make money. I make money to write. Yeah. And the same with filmmaking. And I'm going to start, I'm kind of restarting my film career, but I'm going from the place of like, yeah, I plan and intend to, um, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do as a filmmaker. I'm not entirely sure at this point, to be honest. Yeah. So who knows? I might decide to make these films and then be like, nope, I'm done. That's all I want to do. And I'll, I'll move on and just focus on building businesses. But right now I do want to make some films. You know, I've kind of been battling with that a little bit but I kind of want to go through it. I want to have some fun filmmaking. That's all I want to do. And when yeah. I started as a filmmaker, that's why I did film. Cause I had fun doing it. So at least I'm going to have some fun. That's the way yeah. I look at it. And if it I, doesn't lead to anything big, whatever. I mean, I think that's why we all got into some sort of artistic vocation is because we started out having fun doing it. Right. It was a fun thing to do. And then we bullshit ourselves and convince ourselves about a bunch of other shit. And we make it a bunch about a bunch of other shit. And it's like, no, it's got, it's got no business being, being involved there. You know, it's like, so for me, it's like a lot of this conversation. It's, you know, there is, there is still a balance to be found, you know, because in this whole thing of, it's like, yeah, you know what? You can go off completely and just be like, no, I'm just going to do like whatever. I'm just Mm going to get like, go crazy with my shots and blah, blah, blah. And whatever. And next thing you know, you running into trouble because you didn't get your day, your day or, or, you know, there was a shot that kind of isn't working out actually. And now you've kind of got to just got to live with it or you've got to try and fandangle something crazy. Um, but then on the opposite end, it's like, okay, well you just went for your coverage and now it's like, well, yeah, you've got it. Usually even then sometimes shit can go wrong, but say you got your coverage but now you've got something that's just like, it has no impact. It's got no heart. It's right. got nothing to it. There's no artistry involved with it. It's like, what's worse to me. It's like, like it's creating, you know, piece of art quote unquote, and it's got no heart in it. And it's like, well, what's the point? Right. You know, what were you doing? What was this an exercise in actually like literally like actually like what, so what were you trying to accomplish? That's what, a great question like, because sometimes you, that's what it comes down to is like, really? And I've been there before and I've done it. And I'm sure, I'm sure just about every filmmaker who's, who's had somewhat of a career in filmmaking can say, I was just trying to get my day done that day. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes if that's really like, you got a producer breathing down your neck, you got like whatever going on and that's, what's the most important thing. 
and you won that battle, fine. You won that battle. And that's what it was about that day. But like when you're, when you're not pressured to just get your day done, think beyond that, you know? Yeah. Cause I think that's the thing. I think, I, I mean, you know, people who haven't made films don't necessarily understand always what it means to not get your day done. Like the repercussions of that. Mm-hmm. So like in certain ways they're like, filmmakers and and directors specifically and cinematographers can be under tremendous amount of pressure because like, you know, there's consequences and and they can literally lose jobs if they keep going over time and not getting the stuff done. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure and, and the more money and the bigger the production, the more it amplifies. But like sometimes you have to pick your battles your art has to get subjugated so you can get the day done because it's more important than getting that perfect shot. Yeah. Like Kubrick got to a point where he could do so many shots in the day and it didn't really matter about getting his day done. It mattered. It was the art was like 99.9% of it. I don't know. I'm making up a number. Yeah. And then getting your day done in the technical side of it was like 0.1% or 0.01% because for him, he got himself to a point where he had enough credibility where he could do 127 takes of something and he wasn't going to lose a job. But like when you're a new filmmaker and you, you know, maybe you're not dealing with, maybe you're dealing with a few hundred thousand dollars or maybe you're dealing with a few million and it's your first time directing. You don't get to do 127 takes. Yeah. Like you're going to have to have some serious grace with people because otherwise they're going to be like, look, like you're, we're moving on. We're moving on. You're messing up our show, you know? So, um, so basically I just want to point out that I think this is the artistry industry side of it. Yeah. There's the reality that we do have to all face as artists, but at the same time, we got to find our room in this reality, in this industry where we can explore and be artists. Yeah. Cause if we constantly bend over backwards to the industry or to quote unquote reality, then you know, our art dies. Yeah. Right. It's not all about practicality. No, absolutely not. Right. Yeah. So I think like that's, it's an interesting thing that we're, we know we're like just to venture into it because I think the filmmaker struggle is something that's so taken for granted for people who aren't filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, anybody who's in the film industry could, could benefit from kind of understanding that regardless if they do that position or not, just to kind of have some compassion for, you know, what that struggle is about. And I think people could benefit from having compassion to everybody's struggle. Like, you know, I just had a meeting with, uh, with a a new client and, you know, we're going to be doing like a mentorship program and they, you know, I was talking to them about my experience as a director and whatever. And we were talking about actors and they they had a lot of, because they want to be a director, right? Yeah. So they were talking a lot about, well, how do I deal with this? If an actor does that or does this or whatever. And I was like, well, you know, you want to try to have compassion for the actor. Most importantly, you want to understand that you as a director have a vision of the whole project. They may only have a vision of their character in the project. So already they don't have as much um, necessarily awareness of how this is all being put together and and all the pieces. Um, and the other thing too, is as an actor, because it's their face and it's them, you know, and they're vulnerable and sharing their emotions that they're going to be sensitive. And in certain ways, their job is to look after themselves. So they may seem, um, 
to you, they may seem egotistical or they may seem as though they're being diva, but in certain ways, that's part of the actor's struggle. They have to kind of, in some ways, look after themselves because let's be honest, on a lot of sets, the actors are not being looked after and sometimes they're right outright being abused. So for them, they need to, in certain ways. So I was just kind of explaining to her that it's important especially if you want to be like a leader and I'm working on this all the time is try to have compassion and understanding for everyone's position. Mm-hmm. I shared on other podcasts too, about the, you know, how there's so, um, there's so often I've experienced where people don't have compassion for the producer. I mean, yeah. especially a creative producer, like a producer that's there that really wants to make the film great, but doesn't necessarily have the film in their hands, like the director and they're not yeah. the actor and whatever, but like to call that person a suit or to, you know, treat that person like they don't really care about the art of the film. I don't know how to explain how much of a hurtful comment that is Yeah, because just because the producer is making sure that the, you know, the money is met and the day gets done and all of that stuff doesn't mean they don't care. It just means they have different, a job to take care of. Yeah. And so I think the thing is, is that because film is such a collaborative medium, um, you, you get upset at the producer because the producer doesn't want you to take this risky shot or do this big setup, but like understand that they have pressure too. And, and, what people really need to do is figure out how to work together and find where they can kind of compromise and uphold their values. Because I'm sure if that producer understood why you want to do that technical shot and be like, look, if we don't do it, this scene is going to be so safe that it's not going to be interesting at all. So if we, if we do the setup and we get the shot, we can kind of get away with the scene. I think being much more interesting, that creative producer might go, okay, that makes sense. Can we do it faster than, you know, okay, all hands on deck. And they might actually help you. Whereas I think when you just go, oh, they won't let me do my shot. They, all they care about is money and time. You know, it's like, they don't, I mean, everybody's there to make a great project. Mm -hmm. Even people who are there just to make money, they still in their own way, still want to make a great project in their own way. Yeah. Oh yeah. They might not care that much about the art. They might not care about how much you feel about it, but at the end of the day, they want it to make money. Well, and everybody wants to be involved with a great project, you sure. know, why not? You know, and even if you're working on this kind of like crappy B movie or something where it's like, no one's really taking the art seriously, find your little signature in there, you know, find your little place because I mean, we're, we're not just doing a practical technical job art, yeah. even when it's the most cliche, the most kind of goofy kind of, um, pedestrian stuff yeah. still has a little art in it. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, I had a conversation with, um, uh, a chiropractor <laughs> this okay. was some time ago. It was interesting. Cause he was saying like, it's like, you know, I heard said that they are training like uh, like an artificial intelligence to write scripts and that that computers will be like writing movies and like they could put like people out of work, you know, because they can look at all of the best scripts and then they can like figure out how to write a really great script. And I, and I thought, and I said to him, like, I'm really not that concerned about that. <laughs> I don't think that that's going to be a real problem about computers writing better scripts than people because there's a human element that goes into it. I mean, there's enough people who have, who have themselves analyzed 
the best scripts and you can write all of like, you know, everything, check a box based on it's like, okay, here's a criteria of what seems to make the, the greatest movies and let's write a movie based on this and, and check all of those boxes. And it would be awful. Right. You know, like we would go and see it and just be like, what is this? Like, this is weird. Like there would be something just off about it if you did, if you compose a story that way, because you can't just objectively on like completely objectively do that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like a marriage of things that are going on within that. That's just like, no, there's like a whole, that's where the art comes in. That's well, the yeah. artist that like that, like the art is what makes it. It's not just the fact that there are these elements and themes certainly that plays a role, but there's just a whole nother world that's going on to make it something that really sings. Well, I think, you know, <clears throat> the other thing when it comes to, cause they're trying to do a lot right now in film to statistically measure everything. Yeah. And, um, from what I understand, there's a lot of, um, things that are happening where they're making more money than they expect or less money than they expect. And the window is, is quite a lot bigger than, than they intend. And so like what's happening is like, as much as they try to refine this stuff, they keep getting surprised by the data that comes out. And the other thing too, is I think with statistical filmmaking, which they're trying to like, there's a lot of people who are trying to make this happen right now is that it's one of those things that will work temporarily and then it won't work anymore because, and then it might work again and then it won't work again. And so when you, if you were to take the longevity of statistical filmmaking, what would end up happening is you'll be like, all right, we basically, the statistic is that we found that, um, it, it works temporarily. And like, basically the, the thing is to see that it, all we know is that it's like a wave. It works and doesn't work. It works, doesn't work kind of yeah. thing. Because if you look at film history, for example, if you look at art history, if you look at any of the histories, music history, the stuff that was popular at one point is not popular anymore. And so usually what turns, um, the tide of artistry is really one of two things. One is people get bored of what's being done because they're being delivered what they want, but then it gets oversaturated. They get so much of what they thought they wanted. They don't want it anymore. So that changes art. The other side of it is that you have an artist who comes along, who does something that seemingly is different and unexpectedly works in a profound way. And all of a sudden everything starts to go, we got a new path. And so I think the thing is, is that go ahead, be aware of all the statistics, figure out, you know, figure that that's great. But err on the side of being that artist that does something authentic and makes something that matters to you. And then if it ends up kind of being that thing that works out, then I think like, you know, that's really great. But I think like with doing all this stuff, I really think you want to do stuff that matters to you. I, I, I mean, the biggest thing I've learned in this industry is really like, it can be a draining industry if you're doing stuff not for, not for your own passion and love, because there's just honestly so many better ways to make money. Mm-hmm. There's so many less stressful, um, ways to go about doing life yeah. that like, you know, start a business. Like you already have those skills. You already have the social skills, you know, like don't do it for the money. Don't do it to like 
please everybody else. Do it because you have like an expression. Um, and like, you know, I have this one, I'm going to share one last little thing. I have a, a friend who's a writer and, um, you know, he has a certain kind of style of writing that I think he will do very well. If he stays with it, he will do very well in the industry. If he's willing to kind of embrace his kind of his, his desire, like he almost likes to write movies that are kind of like what are commercially viable. You know, Mm -hmm. he, he enjoys that type of movie. Yeah. And so the thing is, is that in a lot of ways right now, if he can hone that in and figure out how to really deliver on that, he'll have a lot of fun because right now commercially, at least for movies, the type of stuff he likes to write will probably work. But for myself, you know, I look at what I like to write and I like to write things that would be like, most people don't want to put a lot of money behind them. Like what I really like to write is more grounded, more dramas, but, but, but actors might want to get behind. So really like his Avenue and my Avenue are different. He could probably get more producers to finance his projects than I could doing the type of writing he's doing. Yeah. But for me, I could probably more likely get actors attached to my types of movies. Mm. So if I got the actor attached, then my movie will get made. But like, you got to go down the path that's true for you. And so like, I tried to go down that path of like kind of writing more commercial and I found that I didn't really enjoy it. And so, um, I mean, I can do it and I, I may still do it. I don't know. But like what I started to find out was like, well, no, I, I want character driven stories. And if that means that, you know, as a script itself, producers aren't going to necessarily want to get behind it, then I need to find a different avenue. Someone else is going to get behind it, you know, because like Oscar movies don't tend to make as much as blockbuster movies. Mm -hmm. Right. So, but the thing is, is like, am I writing movies to make the most amount of money or am I writing movies to make the best film I can make? And does that mean risking making movies that never get seen or never get made because they are not necessarily as commercially viable. And I think like my point here is just that all artists just need to simply be true to what they want to do Yeah. and stop trying to necessarily do what you think the industry requires of you. And I think if it's really about making money and you want to be rich and famous, don't, don't use film use something that's like use business or use something that's more consistent, something you have more control over. Um, if you really like, like if you just want to make money out of film, then go like do B movies, do things that will, you know, do things that will have a good turnover and distribution across the world, which maybe no one will ever know of, but make a lot of money, you know, get, get down that road, but it won't be that artistic. But the thing is, is I think we really need to like, take a breath, figure out what we want to do and figure out what we're willing to give up and risk losing to do what we really want to do. That's just my opinion. Yeah. But that's where I've kind of come to in my career because I look at it as like, well, you know, I would still probably make films and write scripts and act and do all this stuff, whether I made money or not, I would just do it. So if I make money doing it, that's a bonus. So to me, I'm kind of like, well, I really do like business and I really do like teaching people. And I like, really helping people get off the ground to make their films. And I can make money doing that. I can make quite a bit doing that. So for me, I look at it as a go, well, you know, if that's how I make money and then I go off and I do what I love, which is travel and make films and write scripts and act and stuff, then that's what I do. I don't, 
like the thing is, is that they have a symbiotic relationship. You know, if you're like, if you're a waiter and you make your money waiting, but then you get to go to acting class and you love acting class, it's a great relationship. Don't make it wrong that because you're not making money from acting that somehow you're a failure. Like you're figuring it out. You know what I mean? And probably the thing that's stopping you is that you think you need to be something more than what you are, do something more than what you're doing. If you just keep working on acting or you keep working on your writing or your filmmaking, given enough time with the sense that you're willing to take some risks, how can you not find a way to succeed? Right. But I think it requires two things. It requires consistent practice and persistence, and it takes the willingness to go for it, but not just go for it, but to take risks and be willing to fail along the way and think of it as failing upwards, fail, 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 fail until you succeed. Yeah. Don't look at life as you need to succeed, 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 and hope you never fail. I think the latter is the biggest mistake any of us ever make. Yeah. That's my speech to the world. <laughs> well, that was a pretty good one. I don't know. Pretty I just had speech. to get it off my chest, man. Oh yeah. 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 You feel lighter. I do. I feel all good. right. Yeah. So, uh, that's good. Um, all right. So any last thoughts going to take away something from this? Yeah. You know, this has been a really, this has been a really cool, it's been a really cool talk. Um, and my takeaway from this thing that stands out to me the most from this conversation is, uh, for me is like really, is really honoring, honoring myself in this, like honoring my own impulses and, and ideas Hmm. in, in my art a little bit more, you know, like just, you know, cause I had a, you know, a situation like I've, I talked a little bit about how I've been doing some recording. It was a new experience. And to a large degree, I was, I was doing much of what I was kind of being told to do. Right. Um, because I felt a little fish out of water and, and I was comfortable doing that being like, you know, like, Hey, listen, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> so give me some direction here. Um, but there were times I, I, when I look back now, I'm like, you know what? I, I think it could have held my ground a little bit more on certain things. Uh, cause I'm still proud of what happened and it was uh, useful for me to learn from, to see, Oh, this is why some things are kind of done in a certain way and whatever, but then being able to go, yeah, I get it. I still want to do it this way. Hmm. Right. Um, so it was useful for that, but you know, there was, there were a few moments where it was just like, Oh, okay. I don't know which take we want to use for, for this little bit. And I said, well, you know, and we're going through them. I said, well, what about that last one? I thought that last one was actually really good. And they're like, well, let's listen back to it. And everyone went, oh yeah, that is really good. And that's the, like the take that we went with, right? You know, it's like little things like, had I not, you know, you got to stand up for your, for your voice, for your vision, for you got to stand up for your artistry. Um, so I'm going to stand up for it a little bit more. Okay. Right on. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. Trust and, and value, what I'm bringing to the table a little bit more, you know, it's okay. It's great to listen. It's great to be a part of a team and to, and to receive feedback and take suggestion. But, you know, as artists, it also means being able to stand and stand strong. Yeah. I like that. 
All right. Yeah. You know, I, I could take that advice myself too. Mine just uh, as a reminder to everybody really is just, and to myself is that I'm going to look at where I'm playing it safe in my life and go off and, and do the risky thing and, and yeah. do something that's a little bit pushes me out of my comfort zone. Something that gives me a chance of risking failure because I think, uh, there's a little bit too much comfort insecurity right now for me creatively. And, um, that actually excites me a lot to think about trying some stuff out and seeing what I could do. Um, as opposed to, you know, doing what I know or think I know works Yeah, because it only works to a point. Yeah. And then it doesn't work anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what I got, man. All right, man. All right. It's been another B and E podcast. (laughs) It sure has. (laughs) All right. Share it, everybody. Tell your friends, let them know that you like it. That was our show for today. Thanks a lot for listening and being a part of this. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe and share with your friends and family, or you can learn more and message us at www.thebndpodcast.com. Oh, and make sure to leave a comment and rate us on iTunes. That will really help us out a lot. It definitely will. Thanks.